In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May it please you, my Lord and my God. Why be good? When we hear that question, it sounds as though we are about to protest. We are beginning to argue against being good, but that isn't the only way the question can be asked. And in fact, because that's the way our ears first hear the question, as soon as the question occurs to us, we don't want to answer it because we think we're being bad. We think it's a question not to be posed. As you can tell, I'm not trying to hide it. I'm about 30, 40 pounds overweight. Not as bad as last summer, but still a long ways to go. Whenever I look at a picture of myself from two years ago or three years ago, I think, wow, I looked. I look a lot better than I thought I did at that time. <clears throat> it's a strange process. I say this not to necessarily um, make uh, my problems your concern, but rather for the sake of acknowledging that this is, this is a, I'm an expert at being slightly overweight. And of course, people volunteer uh, assistance, and they uh, offer advice, and they offer um, insight, and they offer um, motivation and encouragement and information. And before too long, it was, it's the, the, all the information that's needed is, is really clear. One pound equals 2,000 calories, period. Obviously, a metabolism can be fast or slow. That depends on age and activity and other factors. But still, one pound is 2,000 calories. Either decrease calorie intake by 2,000 or increase the burning of calories by 2,000. Create that deficit. You lose a pound. How to lose weight? That's easy. There are a million ways, and there's so much... Um, uh, so many programs and so many uh, methods. How, the how, how to lose weight, that's the easy part. What's the hard part? The hard part is why lose weight. That's the hard part. Why? Why be disciplined? Why exercise? Why care? That's the question. So at some point... Uh, if I finish the books that I'm working on right now, I would love to write a book one day entitled, Why Lose Weight? Part of that is obviously the, the fundamental question of why, why even care, but that's not the focus of it. 
but it's rather about the reality of needing motivations. What is your motivation? Is it good enough to carry you through? And it's not even sufficient to have one motivation. We need to have many. We need to have many reasons to do this good and difficult thing. At any given time, the one that I used before might not work right now. I need another motivation. Sometimes we call it our inner dialogue or our inner conversation. Some people, if they talk out loud, are simply accused of talking to themselves. But we are always engaged in thought. Even when we're not thinking words, we're still interacting. Even when we're lost in, in amazement at the beauty of nature or the beauty of our Lord on the altar. And there are no words being spoken inside of us. There's still, there's still engagement. We then have to be our own best coach. We are always coaching ourselves. We are always encouraging ourselves, acknowledging pitfalls, identifying problems, rejoicing over success, pouting over hurts, solving problems, and much of the time encouraging ourselves to do the right thing. We have to be our own best coach. And a good coach has lots of tricks, lots of motivations, lots of ways to entice us, whether it be fear, whether it be uh, the desire for reward, whether it be just the, the satisfaction of, of completion and of victory. So why be good? On the simplest level, the Lord made us to be good. The Lord made us in his own image and likeness. For the Lord God, it is impossible to be bad, not a syllogism, because what's good is not simply by force of divine decree, but good can be recognized as good even when no one knows what a divine decree is. Made in his image and likeness, it ought to be easier for us to be good than to be bad. <clears throat> we have a natural desire for what's good, for what's true, for what's beautiful. We are drawn to it. But we are given, gifted with the ability to think about more than one thing at the same time. 
The devil uses that to deceive us. We are intent on doing good, and we are tricked into something else. But the Lord God uses that to rescue us as well. Our minds might not be on him, but he can get our attention. We had to be tricked into sin. The evil one had to lure us into it, had to lie to us. But now we are afflicted. And it does sometimes take great effort to be good. A few souls seem to be so innocent that they require little effort to be good, but we don't know what their inner struggles may be. And so being good is not just simply as simple as acting according to your nature and doing as you will. Free will is an important part of this, and that has to be addressed later. No, at first, the Lord is cognizant of our condition, in some cases, our depravity, and permits us to be motivated by less than perfect desires. A simple desire to make the pain stop. A simple desire to avoid punishment. The prodigal son is a story about a, a young man who had far from perfect contrition. But he had enough motivation to get on the road that would lead him back to his father's house. An imperfect motive is perfectly suitable to begin the road. But then we need more motivations. For one, like yourselves, who has a prayer life, who has a sacramental life, who is habitually in the state of grace, There are many motivations that can encourage us to be more than just good, to be better than okay. We can think of all the people who know us as religious. We can think of all the people who look up to us. We can think of our godchildren our children and grandchildren. We can think of everyone who's ever asked us to pray for them. And we know that we want our prayers for them to be as powerful as possible. Not only do we not want to let them down, but we want to give them as much good as possible.
My father instilled in me a fascination with cemeteries. I think whenever he visited a town, he would read the phone book to see what the family names were, where people came from who live in that town, and if he had the opportunity, he would visit the cemetery. He uh, continues to teach me to visit the cemetery because he's been gone for 23 years now. And the cemetery is only minimally a place where I have permission to be sad. It is most especially a place of hope. The cemetery is a place where we have visible evidence of God's last promise waiting to be fulfilled, the resurrection of the dead. A cemetery is a place where a Christian looks into the future. And there is great motivation to think of our loved ones and to pray for them in the same way that we thought of all of those who look up to us or have asked us to pray for them, to pray for the ones we knew in this world who want us praying for them. There's another even more specific motivation but to be able to look forward to being with them in heaven, it's our only joy, it's our only peace. As life continues, we accumulate sorrow after sorrow, grief after grief, and the Lord can comfort us. But eventually our comfort is in knowing that we will, we will be with them in heaven if we persevere. It is no comfort at an early stage in life, but we can think of every funeral as being God very gently, very slowly, plucking away one person at a time and taking them to himself the way that we teach a little baby how to walk. You let go and you take a step back and it forces the baby to, to stumble forward. And then you do it again. You take a few, few steps further back and the baby has to struggle even harder to, to get closer to you because they want to be with you. And, and you're increasing the distance. In no way are you inflicting harm. In no way are you... Are, are, are you implying that you don't want to be in an embrace with this perfect little chubby toddler? But the very, that very desire is what prompts you to create that distance. God is doing that with us. And he is slowly populating heaven with the people that we love most. And eventually, sooner or later, we will realize that we are in this world for a very short time. It is a pilgrimage. The only place where we will feel truly at home is in heaven. And the road there is relatively short and not as difficult as it could be.
Why be good? It seems a nonsensical question. It seems as ridiculous as asking the question, why eat? Needs no answer. But at the same time, it's when we ponder that question that we figure out um, why it is that we do what we do. When we're being good for some comfort, when we're being good for some attention, that results in patterns of being good and not being good. When we eat for comfort, when we eat to celebrate, um, then we're um, never going to find a respite. <laughs> some people only eat when they're stressed, and some people eat when they're um, happy. But the people who tend to eat at both times just have a long, hard road. But why eat? When we, when we realize finally in life that food is meant to keep me alive. And to help me enjoy life. Otherwise, why be alive? then we have a completely different relationship with it. It is so necessary that it happens without needing an explanation. But as we ponder the question, we grow. Why be good? It is so necessary that it needs no explanation. But as we ponder it, we grow. So for the next 30 minutes, I encourage you to spend time with your Lord and to permit yourself to ponder the question, why, why, why be good? Why, am I, why do I desire good? Why do I try to be good? Why am I interested in growing in holiness? Or why do I try to obey God's law? What are my motivations? How can my motivations be augmented? What motivations are there at my disposal I've never even thought of before? What is it that God has in store for me? What are the imperfect motivations that I don't need anymore? <clears throat> and I won't begrudge others if they avail themselves of the same imperfect motives. Lord, teach us not just to obey you. Teach us to love you better and better each day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. May it please you, my Lord and God. Walk. Don't run. If we spend any time at the pool in the summertime or ever have, we have heard a lifeguard say, walk, don't run, stop running. I think of that frequently because we, not only here, but uh, everywhere in America, there are people out on the sidewalk, sometimes on the road, jogging. Now, if you see at any time someone as large as me jogging, you would be doing them a favor if you slowed down, rolled down your window, and shouted to them, walk, don't run. That's my temptation whenever I see a large body doing that because the only thing that's happening is they're damaging their knees, they're damaging their ankles, their hips. There's very little gained by trying to run um, at that point, you'll, you'll burn many calories if you run 10 miles, but you won't burn that many uh, running for half an hour or 45 minutes. More than likely, what will happen is you'll simply feel good, which is not a bad thing. You will feel like you've earned a big meal, and you will gain weight. It always surprises people, it even surprises me, to talk about those months in 2012 when I trained for and ran the New York City Half Marathon, which is 13.1 miles. When you see that little oval sticker on the back of a sporty small VW or Subaru, and it says 13.1, that means they, they've done or do half marathons. It was a lesson in many respects, lesson in humility, lesson in perseverance, but also uh, it taught me that this is not the way that I'm going to lose weight. I trained for several months and over the course of those months, I gained weight. So, as we mentioned before, the metric is simple. One pound is 2,000 calories. Walking a good bit can do just as much to raise our metabolism as running. It does it without damage to our joints. It does it without... Uh, the fatigue and the appetite um, effects. Eventually, when we've made enough progress and we won't be hurting ourselves and we can actually run far enough to um, make it worthwhile, then go ahead and jog. When Father Hathaway, by the way, left this parish, and some of you are here when Father Hathaway was the pastor and moved to Front Royal, 
he was joined a year and a half later by yours truly. And he was my pastor for a good year and a half. And one Lent, we challenged each other to drop 20 pounds. Uh, whoever didn't had to shave his head. And that whole time, all I did was walk. I walked for several miles a day, and then after um, another year or two after that is when I just first, uh, and that juncture, um, resumed jogging. Walk, don't run. When we are trying to make spiritual progress, we would be wise to heed the same advice. Walk, don't run. We don't make great progress quickly. When I was um, a really young boy, six, seven, eight, I relished Lent. I always thought that Lent was going to be so perfect that the only thing left for me was to get the stigmata when it was over. And that never happened. We don't, that's not how holiness works. That the great desire, that intensity is wonderful, but it has to be applied very, um, very gently and constantly. It's more important that the effort be constant than that the effort be intense. All right, what happens when we exercise intensely for a moment and then take a long break and then resume again? Uh, we injure ourselves. Our spiritual regimen has to, has to be constant. We learn basic prayers as a child or at the beginning of our Christian life. As we continue, we learn what those words mean and we realize how scary those prayers actually are or how perfect they are, how perfect the sentiments are. We despair of saying those words. Why, why am I saying these words? I don't... I don't perfectly love God. I don't perfectly love and forgive my neighbor. I don't perfectly hope. I don't perfectly believe. But we know that we want to. And if we don't want to, then we pray for the, for the desire to want to. In the same way that St. Ignatius Loyola encourages those who are in discernment, pray to know the will of God only when you desire to do the will of God. God will not show you his will unless you already want to do his will. Why would you even want to know his will 
if you haven't decided you are going to do his will. And if you don't have the desire to do his will, then pray for the desire to desire his will. We make progress slowly, and God understands. In fact, the progress we make is only by the force of God's grace, by his effort, by his working on us. And so we return to him constantly in our thoughts and in our hearts. We return to him here, to the church, to be in the presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity as often as we are able. Not to accomplish some great thing, but simply just to lift ourselves up to him, but to put ourselves back into his presence. The lives and the vocations of monks and nuns are a great lesson. Their life is a constant, gentle lifting of their hearts to God. They are champion walkers. Following a gentle schedule that seeks to pray as much as possible as one can indefinitely for the rest of one's life while offering up as much penance as possible indefinitely for the remainder of one's life. Their life on any given day is, is quite easy. We would wonder what the big deal is. Some monasteries wake up early in the morning, in the middle of the night, to pray. But for someone in the world, a little bit of sleep and a little bit of work and then a nap and more work, completely feasible. The Benedictine life is, is, is a life of, of order and beauty. It's not a life of extremes. But the human body is, and the human soul is hard-pressed to live something more generous every day for the rest of one's life. In the north of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but in Donegal, there is a very cold lake called Loch Derg. Some of you know it well. In the middle of this massive lake about the size of many city blocks. There's a tiny little island. And the island is now called St. Patrick's Purgatory. St. Patrick knew that there on that little island was a cave where demonic worship had taken place. And in order to loosen the grip of Ireland from the devil, he went to that cave to do battle. And with his arms outstretched, he prayed continuously through the night 
and through the next night too, I believe. And the evil spirit was broken. Within 100 years, pilgrims were coming to that very same spot to pray in just the same way. It became so popular by the early Middle Ages that the pilgrims had to be not only organized because the island was so small, but even tempered. Monks were permitted to be there barefoot, eating nothing, praying through the night for no more than five days. Priests and lay people were permitted no more than three days. And then not just to keep the line moving, but because there was only so much that um, would be permitted for eager souls to do to themselves. Now St. Patrick's Purgatory is arranged with a few buildings. A few, there's a church, there's a dormitory, there's a, a gift shop, of course. Wherever there are pilgrims, there's a gift shop. When you make your plans to go to Loch Derg, the, the Loch Derg fast is supposed to begin as at midnight of the day that you arrive. So you're supposed to have been keeping the fast from um, on your own before you get to the island. About midday, you take a boat to the island. It's just a, a two-minute trip. When you get to the island, you take your shoes off. Everyone has to be barefoot. You're shown where your bunk will be, but you won't see the bunk that night because you'll be up. The routine of prayers <clears throat> focuses on, on, on a few spots that look like archaeological digs, but they're just small remnants of stone huts. Just the base is, is still there. And there's just a series of, of simple prayers, Our Father, Glory Be, the Creed. There's one spot where you hold your hands out in the shape of a cross. There are many spots where you're kneeling down on the rocks. Other spots where you're walking slowly. One of the last bits of the station is standing with your feet ankle deep in the lake water as you say your prayers. It takes about 45 minutes or so to pray all the prayers and to visit all the spots that go into making one of the stations. If you're Irish, it takes you about 25 minutes. And all of this is happening in complete silence. All of these prayers are whispered. I believe by the time the first 24 hours on the island are done, you um, are to have completed 10 stations, and then you're allowed to sleep the next night. So by the time you sleep, you will have been awake for a good 36 hours, praying relatively constantly, which is assisted by the fact that you're not wearing any shoes and the stone underfoot is cold. 
Keeping the fast helps you stay awake too. The Lockdurg fast consists of one meal in which you are permitted to have as much tea or as much coffee as you want and as many crackers as you care to enjoy. Some modern accommodations have crept in over the last few decades and um, people are allowed to put cream in their coffee. At nighttime, these pilgrims aren't doing the stations outside. They're doing them inside. And out loud and together. And then at the end of each station, people are permitted to retire to a a waiting area. It looks like a bus station. And there, for those who are keeping the night um, vigil, uh, a special treat awaits them where they are allowed to have lock derg soup. Lock derg soup is hot water in which you're allowed to put salt and pepper. By the time the night has done and you're most of the way through your first 24 hours of continuous prayer, there's no possibility of falling asleep. And not just because your feet are always touching the cold floor and not just because of the fast, but because of a little secret they do not tell first-time visitors to Loch Derg. It's an insect much smaller than a gnat called a midge. And midges are impervious to bug repellent. And they bite you constantly. And so it's quite, a, quite an experience to be, especially outside, when all the prayers are being done silently by dozens and dozens and dozens of people from all over, of all ages, many of whom have been there 10, 20 times. Because these prayers are being offered up quietly by people who are in dire agony because these bugs are chewing away at their ankles. And it takes all your effort not to scream. But then there are moments when all of it seems to subside and you feel your entire body and your entire soul being lifted up to God, not just in prayer, but in, but in sacrifice. There is nothing in the world like it. And so for 48-hour periods, lay people and a few priests are on Loch Derg, living a life that is far more intense than any monastery in the world. The most ascetic monastery doesn't hold a candle to what is happening at Loch Derg on St. Patrick's Purgatory.
and with one group, one boatload after another, passing the baton to the next, they are keeping a kind of communal life. But as everyone knows, completely, completely unsustainable. It is beautiful in its own right. But it also shows the the difference between what we can do sometimes versus what we can do all the time. And sometimes we can take an element of what we do in those intense periods and, and continue it on. A good rule of thumb for Lent. Rather than Lent being a time when we do something that we drop like a hot rock as soon as it becomes Easter, rather it can be a time to practice another element of the Christian life, be it in prayer or in something corporal or in something charitable or something spiritual that we will then continue on afterwards. But if all of a sudden we try to do the complete Christian life from the moment of our confirmation, we would break and despair and resent the God who seems to have failed us. But we know God does not fail us. He taught us to pray always without losing hope. He, in effect, told us to walk. Don't run. Persevere. Keep going. Keep going at the pace that you can continue on indefinitely. Because the struggle will never be over. And his help will never subside. Lord, ultimately, you teach us that you are love and that you have loved us before we loved you. Perfect in us a gratitude that needs then no other reason. Simply in knowing that you have created us and you have redeemed us and have created us to be able to share your life. And as we discover this beautiful gift, help us to avail ourselves of any and all useful reasons to believe and to obey and to be good until we just simply love you. Help us never to quit, always to be patient, to be kind and merciful with those who struggle. To recognize when we are harming ourselves and need to slow down or need to adopt a new practice. 
You teach us humility. We don't need to ask for that. And you permit us to fall many times until we are convinced that it will be your power and your grace made effective by our openness and no other force in the universe that will sanctify us. And you will permit it to take time. Like water that's heated and continues to rise in temperature until it boils and then keeps the constant temperature until it's all boiled off. Give us confidence that even when we perceive no change, when intense effort and sincere desire results in no seeming progress whatsoever, help us not to be too self-absorbed and too concerned about whether or not we are making progress and leave that up to you. Every time we go to confession, we say that we are sorry for our sins. And yet every time we go to confession, you permit us to be even more contrite than the previous. Every time we say we love you, you enable us to say that earnestly and yet to mean more each time we say it. Every time we renounce everything and renounce the world and renounce the evil one and all of his empty promises, you permit us to say that with all our heart. And yet at every stage of life, you teach us more detachment and more surrender to your divine will. This Lent, permit us to walk with you. You do not run to the cross. All will happen according to your time. And permit us to walk with you to Emmaus and to the Sea of Galilee. and into heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be.